I'm standing outside of the James Naismith conference room right now as I look at this plaque and we're in the basketball capital of the world. You know, there's the, the Hall of Fame is right across from our hotel. We're here at the Hilton Garden Inn. You can walk outside, you can see the Hall of Fame. Talk about a great candidate. Here's someone who has touched the game in thousands and thousands of ways and left his mark. We got um, probably 45 so maybe even 50. I mean, guys are just rotating in and out, and they're all five-star alums. Uh, they're coming here to see the five-star Hall of Fame, to, to reminisce, to hear stories. And frankly, we're all here in Springfield, Massachusetts, to, to pay respects to Howard Garfinkel getting into the Hall of Fame. Tonight we enshrine the newest members of the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, the class of 2021. He was a very powerful, very influential figure in the whole landscape. Howard Garfinkel didn't have kids of his own or anything like that. He had probably the biggest family in the basketball world, and uh, we're seeing it here firsthand today. I loved him. He's one of a kind. What Garf built was an access and opportunity vehicle for everyone that walked into it. And then it became about relationships. And I wouldn't be where I am at as a man, a coach, a dad without Howard Garfinkel. God rest his soul, Howie Garfinkel, who actually saved my life. Congratulations once again to the family of Howard Garfinkel. Looking back now, this trip to the Hall of Fame in September of 2021 was the last stop on our journey. Over the past year, I've talked to five-star alum like Coach K, Grant Hill, and John Calipari. That's just to name a few uncovering what I would consider the best basketball story never told. It's about a chain-smoking Jewish man from Manhattan who built a camp that completely changed the recruiting business forever. I am Tate Frazier. Welcome to the world of Five Star. Can't look at the ball. Can't look at this story starts the first time I heard the name Howard Garfinkel as a kid growing up on Tobacco Road. And to be fair, I realized quickly college basketball isn't just a sport. It's basically a religion, a reason for being. And for me, it was in my blood. I went to UNC Chapel Hill just like my parents before me. My mom was even lucky enough to witness Mike Jordan hit the shot over Georgetown in 1982. This is a special region in North Carolina where the game's biggest rivals live just eight miles apart, where legendary coaches like Dean Smith, Roy Williams, and Mike Krzyzewski are both worshiped and vilified. Right in my hometown in Henderson, North Carolina, my great uncle, Lawrence Cotton Clayton, happened to be one of the greatest high school players in the state's history. He held the scoring record for over 40 years and still holds the state record with 46 rebounds in one game. As I heard the stories about my uncle's dominance growing up, I fell in love with basketball's rich history and it became my passion. The idea of telling these stories led me to pursue a career in journalism and I've been entrenched in the media ever since my college days working the sidelines in Chapel Hill. That was Tate Frazier live at the Dean Dome. It's about to get rowdy there. Keep it turned up, Tate. So why am I telling you this? Because it's how I first heard the name Garf, a New York recruiter who worked with then-Duke head coach Vic Bubis trying to recruit my uncle in the early 1960s. Back then, instead of texting players and sticking to strict recruiting windows, guys like Bubis or Garf might do something unimaginable, like sleep at a recruit's house for over a month. But I'll unpack that part of the story later. As I dug deeper into Garf's life, I realized he was an early architect of the tobacco road I grew up watching and loving. 
So when it was announced that Howard Garfinkel would be a 2021 Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame inductee, it felt like the perfect time for the world to hear the definitive story about Garf's crowning achievement, the iconic five-star basketball camp. Welcome to the world according to Garf. That's G-A-R-F, as in Garfinkel. Howard Garfinkel, as in basketball. So naturally, the first call I made was the five-star historian, Alejandro Danois, to learn about the man whose fingerprints remain all over modern-day scouting, recruiting, and coaching. Now, am I exaggerating that, Ali? Not at all. I think, uh, as a matter of fact, you might be underselling how important Howard Garfinkel was and the the fingerprints that he left on this early stages of the development of modern basketball, scouting, coaching, player development. The guy was an architect in terms of the game that we're watching today. Before Garf was doing TV interviews in the early 1980s or launching his inaugural camp in 1966, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, Manhattan 1929, the year of Garf's birth and when America plunged into the Great Depression. The Garfinkel family, though, was far from depressed. I am from the borough of Manhattan. Very strict father, a mother that lived to 102. Garf's father was a guru down in New York City's garment district, and young Howard was in line to inherit the family business, M. Garfinkel and Sons, built by his grandfather. But that didn't mean Garf was content. He was well-educated, had a way with words, and at his core was a natural-born showman. His first taste of the bright lights came when his father took him to watch college basketball at the old Madison Square Garden. It was there in the smoke-filled arena, watching from the side loge green seats, the very best in the house, where Garf's obsession for the game of basketball was born, a decision Garf's father would later regret. At that time, New York basketball was the centerpiece of basketball in America. George Raveling played basketball at Villanova, and was the head coach at Iowa, USC, and Washington State before entering the Hall of Fame. He also happened to be one of Garf's oldest, most loyal friends. If they have an arena in heaven, it had to be a replica of the Garden. The summertime is where Garf found his calling, at an overnight sports camp in New Hampshire. At that time, I got the first bug, the age of maybe 14 and 15 and 16. And then I was a counselor at this camp for many years, and I always thought I could run a camp better than the guy that was running it when I went there. While at Camp Mascoma, Garf met a counselor who would ultimately change the course of his life forever. A gentleman by the name of Mike Teinberg, he would uh, regale us with stories about his teams. Today they call it AAU. In those days they just call it outside ball. After a short stint as a student at Syracuse University, Garf reluctantly returned home to fulfill his father's wish and work in the family business. But Timeberg's story stuck with a young, impressionable 18-year-old Garf. He fell in love with a game that was purely regional at the time. This is back when Spalding and Converse were the only two major brands, the Harlem Globetrotters were the best team in basketball, and George Mikan was the face of the NBA. By the time Garf reached his early 20s, he was a certified hoops junkie. So when he reunited with Timeberg back in the city, he was ready for a dream opportunity to come his way. Finally, I went to one of his games out in Queens. There was an awful, awful team, and the coach quit, and they asked me would I take over that team. 
And I said, yeah, I'll do you a favor. So I did him a favor. I'll tell you how bad we were. One game we showed up, the other team showed up with four players. We went on a forfeit. And I said, no, no, let's play. I don't want to win a forfeit. Let's play the game. So they beat us by 20. It may have started as a nightmare, but those losses as a YMCA coach in Queens only fueled Garth. Season ended gracefully, and thank God ended. Then they have what they call a tournament. So uh, I put together perhaps the greatest team in the history of what they call outside ball. This is the moment when Garf's coaching career began, where he emerged as one of the best eyes for basketball talent all around New York City. If you heard the name Garf, you knew you were talking about basketball. That was still the greatest thrill I've ever had in basketball, was winning that tournament. I'll never forget it. That taste of success was all Garf needed. He was officially out on the family business. The first realization Garf had in his new venture was simple. The name of the game was, is, and always will be recruiting. You gotta have the players. He became obsessed with discovering transcendent basketball talent. So he started his own AAU team, the Nationals, thanks to a sponsorship from Wexler's former wear in Jamaica, Queens. Through his signature thick frame glasses, Garf spotted a point guard who would go on to become the only head coach to ever win an NBA and NCAA title. This is back when he was just a kid from the shores of Long Island, Larry Brown. I started playing for him when I was 16 years old. I thought I was pretty good and all of a sudden I go to play against some of these kids from Brooklyn, Queens, New York, the Bronx, and I realized I had a long way to go. We were 38 and one over two summers in the Grover Cleveland Summer League. We beat everybody. We beat Hawkins and Brown and Rudy LaRusso and it was the best team ever. Garf's future business partner, a young Tom Kinchowski, was watching these AAU games from across the gym, writing tedious notes on his signature yellow legal pad. In your era, the Riverside Church and the Gauchos were the preeminent programs in New York City. Well, back when I was growing up in the 50s and early 60s, it was the New York Gems, coached by Mike Teinberg, and the New York Nationals, coached by Howie Garfinkel, who claims he won 511 games. I can't vouch for that, but I believe him. My career record was 511 wins and 151 losses. By this time in the early 1950s, Garf was scouting too much talent for one team, opening a window of opportunity for him to think bigger. So he helped put together all-star games showcasing the city's best young players, like the famous New York Philly game featuring legends like Connie Hawkins and Will Chamberlain. Which Garf was very involved in, especially picking the players from New York. It didn't make any difference how many people were at the game. When he walked in, everybody would scoot over so he could get a seat. Garf could get a seat in any gym. The only thing he ever needed was a ride. He never drove a day in his life. He either relied on public transportation or his future Hall of Fame friends like Coach George Ravlin. Our favorite meeting spot was on the New York side of the George Washington Bridge. From there, we went wherever Garth wanted to go. It could be up to Norwalk to see Calvin Murphy play. It could be off to Jersey. It was always an adventure with Garth. Now, this is a pivotal moment in the expansion of college basketball. There was more high school talent in the Northeast than Division One, Two, II, and Three colleges could carry. Not everybody could go play for St. John's or Villanova. So there were plenty of schools, namely from the South, ready to pounce and poach players. 
This was good news for Howard Garfinkel. So good that in 1955, Vic Bubis, an assistant coach at North Carolina State at the time, offered Garf a job as an unofficial scout. Now, an unofficial scout was a sly way of saying a guy who would funnel kids to your program for a fee, a favor. It was all very unofficial business. Back then on Tobacco Road, it was NC State proudly fueled by Garf versus North Carolina featuring Frank McGuire's New York pipeline of players. Coach McGuire was a New Yorker himself and is a true legend at St. John's. Future three-time ACC Coach of the Year, Bobby Crimmins, followed McGuire South. But he didn't stop recruiting New York kids. <laughs> In 1957, as Garf's notoriety was growing, his operations started attracting more attention and more new faces. One of those faces happened to be a young aspiring journalist named Dick Schapp. He asked to shadow Garf so he could see the college scouting business in action. But Schapp wasn't just any kid trying to learn the business. He was looking for his first big story, and Garf gave him the exclusive access he needed to tell it. Supposedly, he approached Garf and said that he was writing a term paper. So Garf kind of opens up his world to him and you know, Dick Schapp is over at his apartment and he takes him all around the city and shows him what goes on with the Nationals. As you can imagine, Garf was shocked when he saw his picture featured in a now infamous Sports Illustrated story titled Basketball's Underground Railroad. The focus was on exposing Frank McGuire, who happened to be dominating the recruiting trail at the time. Donnie Walsh, Lenny Rosenblut. I mean, it was just incredible. He won the national championship over Kansas and Will Chamberlain with five New York area guys. The article also featured legendary street scout Spook Stegman. What a name. And he openly admitted to taking money. He hated this nickname. <laughs> well, it sounds like you know him well, Coach Raveling. He was a legend around New York City. All the coaches, players knew him. He would always have tickets to the games and stuff. And when Frank McGuire was coaching, he had that New York mafia that recruited for him. And as I think back, I might have met Garf through Spook Stedman. And then there's Garf's old pal, Mike Timber, who claimed in the story to be on North Carolina staff. But UNC said otherwise, claiming he was definitely not an employee of the school. In the article, Garf insisted he, quote, wasn't in the scouting business for financial gain due to his family's fortune, end quote. But being seen with a group of the shadiest characters was a major blow to Garf's reputation. And this was not good news for his business. They had a picture of Garf in the Madison Square Garden lobby with a caption that noted that he was a scout for North Carolina State. And there was a little stain attached to that article because of the shady business of what was going on in college basketball recruiting. Four years later, after Garf had weathered the initial PR fiasco and got things back on track, his scouting career hit a major speed bump when the second major point-shaving scandal in 10 years rocked the college basketball world. 37 players from 22 colleges were arrested for their connection to top-level mob conspirator Jack Molinas, and that included some of Garth's players from NC State. Molinas was a former player himself, and he was known for fixing college games. Now let's bring back Ali to help break down this crossroads in Garth's career. You know, this was something that was no joke. Like, the FBI was coming to pull kids out of school. Dudes were going to jail. Dudes were getting killed. Dudes were getting blacklisted from the NBA. Dudes lost their scholarships. Jack Molinas was murdered in cold blood. He was assassinated 
at a mansion in Beverly Hills a few years later. But in terms of Garth, he liked to play the ponies, but he loved basketball too much. After yet another damaging scandal like this, Garth thought his basketball scouting days were over. In the summer of 1963, thanks to that network of his, Garth cashed in a favor with Power Memorial coach Jack Donahue, and he got another shot to go back to his roots working at a basketball camp. Coach by the name of Jack Donahue, who coached Lou Alcindor, better known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in high school in Power Memorial, ran a basketball camp up in Niverville, New York, called Friendship Farm, and he asked me to work. And I went up there and I coached a team in the camp, and uh, we won that one too, by the way. Friendship Farm was known for being the place where prep coaches sent their players so they could bond on and off the court during the summer. And it provided an edge over teams they'd face in the winter. Well, most of my high school team decided to go as a team to camp. And interesting enough, everybody got an All-American college basketball player as their counselor in the bunk. And unfortunately, we did not get an All-American. We got Howard Garfinkel. One of those players this particular year was a young, talented sophomore point guard from Long Island. This was well before he was a Hall of Fame coach. He was just Richie Pitino. The worst part about Goff is he was a chain smoker. The bunk just stenched of his cigarettes, and I think it was Chesterfields he smoked. And I remember as if it yesterday, we took all his clothes out of his bag, and we went into the woods, and we hung him on the limbs of a tree that he couldn't reach. And so... That night, we all faked being asleep, and he started cursing and swearing like you wouldn't believe, where are my clothes, where are my clothes? Went through the night, he got up in the morning, and I was the bunk next to him, and he said, Patino, where are my clothes? And I said, Goff, I have no idea, man. I don't know what happened to your clothes. And it went on for about a day. He had no clothes, no underwear, nothing. And then finally, uh, <laughs> I relented. I took him into the woods. I took a branch and we had got all his clothes down. And that was the start of a long friendship together. Patino's pranks couldn't shake Garth. Instead, he was laser focused on a young up and coming head coach from West Point, And his name was Bobby Knight. So Garth left Friendship Farm with a new plan. He dreamt of opening his own basketball camp. But first he needed to find a way to turn his livelihood into an honest living. So he sat down with his typewriter to combine his two best skills scouting, and his quick-witted ability to describe a player in great detail, both informative and very entertaining, as Hubie Brown can explain. Not only could he write, he could really bring out names and statements that were lasting. Garfield nicknames for everybody. <laughs> what happened next was something groundbreaking. In January of 1965, Garf debuted the first of its kind, a scouting report called High School Basketball Illustrated, better known as HSBI. And if you think Garf wasn't the first to put out a report like this, well, good luck telling that to Coach George Ravlin. I know for a fact that he was the first one to come out with those scouting reports. I don't care what anybody says. He used to have a magazine at one time. Garf patterned his magazine after the Dell Book, a who's who of college basketball published prior to every season. As Rick Pitino likes to joke, he would critique and rank the great singers. Everything was a ranking with him, which was kind of funny. Despite the notoriety amongst coaches, the HSBI barely broke even. 
Garf was tired, discouraged, and ready to close up shop. That was until he got a phone call from an assistant coach at the Citadel, who raved about how important the HSBI was to their staff's recruiting efforts. That was all Garf's ego needed, so he decided to double down and sell subscriptions of his scouting service. Right off the bat, eight schools responded by sending $50 apiece to subscribe. Ali, will you help explain why this was such a massive deal? It changes college basketball recruiting exponentially. All of the recruiting homework was done in terms of what the player was. And then, you know, there were other aspects to it in terms of a kid's personality. So it was an amazing resource, such so that there was a young combustible coach at the U.S. Military Academy by the name of Robert Montgomery Knight. And obviously he didn't have a recruiting budget. So he did all of his recruiting based off of that HSBI newsletter. The HSBI was known for its colorful analysis. Think phrases like diaper dandy. And as Ali said, it was a major resource for Bobby Knight. He had no travel budget at the time. Teams weren't flying all over the country to find players. In fact, legend has it, all the way out in LA, UCLA head coach John Wooden was one of the first subscribers. And that's where he read about his future superstar big man, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. With $400 in his pocket, Garf turned his gaze back toward his life's dream, to run his own basketball camp. But I found out when I became a young adult that it took a lot of money to own the land and the property. So he needed a big name that carried weight in the Northeast to brand the camp, which led him to Long Island head coach Roy Rubin. Rubin's only stipulation was that his assistant coach come in to help run the business side of the operation. I said, Willie, why don't we get some coaches and start a camp? Do you have a place? Now let's introduce the man who made Garf's dream a reality, co-founder Will Klein. So we went and met with the owner of the camp and we got literature, pictures. We drove up to the campsite and we went to work. The campground was located at Oren Sequa, a half mile from Albany, down miles of dirt road. That winter, I was introduced to a coach at Fairlawn High School named U.B. Brown. I was one of the first six coaches. As August of 1966 approached, Garf and Will were very concerned about finding enough kids. They only had 25 players registered, far from enough to warrant a camp. Then, Will got a call to come down to the post office. There's a package for you at the Jerome Avenue post office. So I went down there. I picked up a package, and lo and behold, huge manila envelope, 26 applications that U.B. Brown had gone all over North Jersey to recruit. We ended up that week with 72 campers. Before Hubie Brown coached the New York Knicks and called games for ESPN, he was a high school teacher who saved Garf's basketball dream. And as you'll see, he will play a pivotal role in Five Star's illustrious history. In that very first camp, the teams played three games during the day, and they had a speaker at 2 o'clock, but it was all about games. That first camp featured two future NBA players, Tommy Owens and John Roach. Ironically enough, they both went to play for Frank McGuire at South Carolina. But this intense setting in summer heat wasn't for everybody. After the first full day, one player famously refused to play. He said, I didn't come to this camp to die. He said, look, when I play for my high school, I get $5 a game, and I'm not getting paid here, so I'm going home tomorrow. Now, here's where it really gets interesting. The first featured speaker 
was slated to be Vic Bubis. There he is again. This was considered payback for Garf scouting services throughout the years. But now Bubis was the head coach at Duke. And in the summer of 1966, he was back on the recruiting trail, staying with top prospects like he did with my great uncle, hoping to get a commitment to the Blue Devils. This wasn't good news for Garf's camp. Vic Bubis never showed up. Garf had called him. He couldn't come, so he sent his assistant to be our lecturer. He had just hired this guy from Puxatawney High School, and that guy was Chuck Daly. Chuck Daly famously coached the Bad Boy Pistons and the Dream Team in 1992. But again, at this time, he was just an assistant coach at Duke. Chuck Daly worked the camp for about 25 years after that, no matter where he went up the line. All of a sudden, Garth's summer basketball vision came to life, and it just so happened to feature two Hall of Fame head coaches, Hubie Brown and Chuck Daly. Safe to say, Garf hit the basketball lottery with his first camp. When that first camp, I mean, three guys played the NBA. But it wasn't lucrative by any means. It made less than $1,000 in total, about $331 a piece. And that was okay. This wasn't about the money, and there were more campers on the way. The camp naturally grew to a couple hundred, so they needed more courts. To secure those courts, they found a new home at Camp Rosemont in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. Where they had the outdoor courts plus a converted barn into a very nice court. And with Roy Rubin taking the Sixers job, they officially needed a new name. Klein and Garfinkel sounds like a Jewish law firm. About a week later, he called me up. I got it. I said, what is it? What do you got? He says, I got the name of the camp. I said, okay, what is it? He says, five-star basketball camp. What do you think? And I don't, I'm not the most enthusiastic guy. Anyway. I said, okay. He said, what do you mean, okay? It's great, great. I said, okay. <laughs> Friend of his had given him the idea because in those days, Goff ran a service called HSBI Report, and five was the highest rating. Like a five-star player was the highest you could be. So that's how five-star became five-star. You heard Will mention Goff's rating system. The rationale being that the team yielded units of five players who all starred in their specific roles. But there was one more puzzle piece to put together. They needed a headliner college coach to run the camp, and Garf had one in mind. He's the most misunderstood, most misquoted coach in the history of our game, sometimes by Garf. <laughs> he induced a guy to come as our head coach for the week. The guy's name was Bob Knight, and he was the coach at Army. The camp became famous because of Bobby Knight, okay? Bob Knight became the first five-star head coach, transforming the camp into the place to be in basketball. Some would even call it the Harvard of basketball instruction. And he did this by installing stations. Coach Hubie Brown was there to see it all. Bobby became the head of the camp. Now with that, no more three games a day. When you got up in the morning, you had to go out and they had exercises. And it was roll call, just like the army. Then you went to breakfast. Then you came out of there into stations. There were 12 stations of different parts of the game. Now for a lot of these kids, this was the most coaching they got in their lives, coming from where they came from. Whether it was suburbia, inner city, where. They were learning so many new things. So here we are. The foundation is set, and the five-star basketball camp is born. A one-week, fun in the sun, have a few laughs. We'll bring some high school coaching friends of ours. We'll teach a lot of basketball, have a great time for a week. 
maybe we'll make a few dollars. And this was just the start of Garth's many contributions to the game. He was building a basketball brotherhood and a business that would own the summertime. That would ultimately put him on a collision course with the NCAA. Coming up next on the World of Five Star, you'll hear how Garf's camp became the proving ground for some of the game's most recognizable players, like a basketball god from rural Virginia by the name of Moses. Moses and And I'll tell you the Michael Jordan origin story you didn't hear in the last dance. I said, Tommy, there's going to be a surprise there because Michael Jordan is coming and he is fantastic. All this and more while hearing exclusive conversations with the prevailing voices of Five Star. I am Tate Frazier and this is the World of Five Star.